Are you looking for a new podcast or maybe you just love celebrity interviews and can't get enough of them? On the Tis Yourself podcast, the Todd aka Rob Mascio from Scrubs told me about his first time speaking to a group of surgeons. And I was just like, listen guys, when in doubt, the Todd's prescription for everything is less moaning, more boning. Or you want to find out more about how Joe Exotic had such a vendetta against Carol Baskin when she had this to say about him. Because I've never even spoken to Joe. Find out all of this and more on the Tis Yourself podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast deals with themes of an adult nature and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. In August 2012, a Dublin woman drove to an isolated cemetery, parked her car and seemingly vanished. Based on her complicated history, including time spent in psychiatric institutions, along with the proximity to rocky cliffs that dropped dramatically into the Irish Sea, authorities believe that her disappearance may have been intentional. But nothing stays buried forever. The following year, evidence began to emerge to suggest that foul play was involved. As police closed in on a suspect, the salacious details of this case entranced the public. This episode covers the disappearance of Elaine O'Hara. I am your host, Rory Jane McCormick. The theme of this season is captivity, and this is Propensity a true crime anthology podcast. After I tell you the story of this case, you may well wonder how it fits in with the theme of captivity. One thing that I've attempted to do throughout this entire season is to broaden our understanding of what captivity is and what it means for victims. We saw in the J.C. Lee Dugard and Stephen Stainer cases, abducted children kept away from the outside world for a time and then once their abductors thought that they'd broken their spirit, were tentatively allowed to interact with the world, all while having no real options for escape. We saw Barbara Mackle, Stephanie Slater and Paul Martin Andrews quite literally confined to tiny wooden structures during their respective captivities. We heard about Sarah Bartman, who testified at court, presumably under duress, that she was free to leave at any time when the truth was far more ominous. Captivity takes many different forms. When hearing about domestic violence cases that escalate to the death of the DV victim, the first thing that a lot of people ask is why didn't they leave? Yet this doesn't take into consideration the complex circumstances of emotional abuse 
and the hold it can have on an individual. A kind of mental or psychic captivity. The case I'm covering in this episode falls within this remit. If you're new to the podcast and haven't already listened to the episodes on the cases I just mentioned, hit the subscribe button now. Go back and listen to those after this episode. I'll give a content warning here that this episode deals with some very difficult topics, including self-harm, miscarriage, suicidal ideation, fetish lifestyles, torture, and physical and sexual violence. As always, I try my best not to dwell in the details and to just tell you the story of the case in the best way that I can. There are a lot of details to this case, and it's going to be a difficult listen. Please proceed with caution. The 22nd of August 2012 was a Wednesday. It was an overcast day in Dublin with daytime temperatures ranging from 13 to 19 degrees. Little Talks by Of Monsters and Men was the number one song in Ireland. The Seth MacFarlane directed film Ted was the number one film at the Irish box office that month. In Stepaside, South Dublin, 36-year-old Elaine O'Hara left her apartment carrying her keys and a mobile phone. She left her bag, wallet and iPhone in her apartment, got into the driver's seat of her car and drove to a familiar destination. She felt a sense of trepidation. She knew that she was going to be punished and just hoped that the punishment would not be too severe. She still bore the scars of the last punishment her master had administered. Elaine was in a consensual BDSM relationship with a married man, but lately she had grown afraid of him as his behaviour, violence and obsession with blood escalated. Having been released from hospital where she'd been receiving psychiatric treatment earlier that day, her master had told her that she would be punished for depriving him of access to her for the duration of her stay. He was particularly angry that she had attempted to take her own life without his explicit involvement. She had reluctantly agreed to the punishment but asked her master not to hurt her too much. He warned her that there would be blood, that he would make her bleed. She also admitted in a text message that she knew that every time they met, he had her life in his hands. Elaine drove to Shangana Cemetery near the South Dublin Wicklow border and parked her car. She was following the instructions her master had given her. They were to meet at 5.30pm. She visited her mother's grave before walking into the adjacent park, crossing the railway bridge towards the cliffs and walking down the steps to the sea. The final message she received on her secret phone instructed her to, quote, go down to the shore and wait, end quote. She was never seen again. Born on the 17th of March 1976, St. Patrick's Day, Elaine O'Hara was the eldest of four children. Her parents, Frank and Eileen O'Hara, 
raised their family in Kalini, an affluent suburb in South County Dublin. If you've ever been to Dublin or seen it on a map, you'll know that Dublin Bay has a crescent shape running from the north to the south of the city. On maps and from above, it looks like someone has literally scooped out whatever land was there and the jagged cliffs provide the only evidence that it may once have been something else entirely. If you stand on Hoth Hill in Dublin Northeast, as I have many, many times, you can see the hilly landscape of South Dublin, including Kalini Head across the bay. The peak of the crescent mirroring itself as you travel north to south. If you look further south beyond Kalini, you'll see the imposing Wicklow mountain range rise towards the sky. Elaine attended a local secondary school in Kalini, St. Joseph of Cluny, but reportedly had difficulties there and was often ostracised and bullied by her peer group. By her final year, she had transferred to the Institute of Education, a private fee-paying school in central Dublin. It was here that she took the state exams. Elaine had ambitions to become a primary school teacher. For those on the other side of the Atlantic, this is basically the exact same thing as an elementary school teacher. In Ireland, this is quite a competitive career choice when it comes to securing a university place. There are also language requirements requiring a high level of fluency in Gaelga, the Irish language, as well as in English, and not everyone who wants to study this degree gets in. Unfortunately, Elaine was one of the many applicants who didn't achieve enough points to train as a primary school teacher. Instead, after finishing school, she attended Sally Noggin College of Further Education. This would be the equivalent of community college in the US and some BTEC courses depending on the level in the UK. Here, she studied childcare, obtaining a qualification that allowed her to work with children in creches and early childhood education settings. In 2002, Elaine and her family were devastated by the death of the family matriarch, Eileen. This is a wound that it seems that Elaine would never fully recover from. In 2005, Elaine moved into a small flat in Blackrock and rented several properties before eventually being offered affordable housing in nearby Stepaside. Affordable housing means different things in different locales and administrative areas. It can mean housing units owned by a council or local authority with indefinite leases or sometimes private housing with rent subsidised by government agencies. In Elaine's case, it appears to be a scheme that allows those to qualify to purchase a property for below market rate. Both Blackrock and Stepaside are not too far away from Elaine's native Kalini, so she was never really too far from her support system. At the time of her disappearance in August 2012, Elaine was 36 years old. She'd been working multiple jobs, including part-time as a childcare worker, and also picked up shifts at a local newsagent's shop at the weekend. She was studying at night to become a Montessori teacher. According to her father, Frank, Elaine battled mental illness throughout her adolescent and adult life. Elaine was much loved by her friends and family. Her father, Frank, had an extremely close relationship with his daughter. 
He believed that he may even have been the closest person in her life, and possibly even her best friend, particularly after the death of her mother. The two spoke every day and saw each other in person at least three to four times per week. In the years since Eileen O'Hara's death, Frank had begun a relationship with Sheila Hawkins, who became a permanent fixture in Elaine's life. All reports suggest that Elaine had a good relationship with her father's new partner. Elaine had booked time off work to volunteer at the Tall Ships Race, a racing festival that was running in Dublin city centre between Thursday and Sunday that week. She seemed excited about the prospect of this event and had even arranged for Sheila to drive her to the city centre for the first day of the race on Thursday the 23rd of August. Thursday morning came and passed and there was no sign of Elaine. She missed her pre-arranged lift and was also a no-show at the festival. Frank jokingly texted Elaine that evening, writing, Are you alive? fully expecting a response. But none came. By Friday morning, Frank was sick with worry. He knew that it was completely out of character for Elaine to be out of contact for this long and contacted Angarda Siakana, the Irish police force, to report her missing. The Gardaí, or Irish police, checked CCTV footage from Elaine's building and saw her leave her apartment on Wednesday afternoon. They found that she had left her personal phone, wallet and handbag at home, but spotted her in camera carrying a mysterious second mobile phone. A phone that none of her friends and family were aware of. The guardie found Elaine's car abandoned outside Shangana Cemetery and canvassed for witnesses. One lead from a jogger confirmed that they had seen a woman matching Elaine's description crying loudly over a gravestone on the day Elaine had gone missing, but couldn't confirm that it was definitely her. There was no trace of Elaine. Based on her psychiatric history and the location they had found her car, the working assumption was that she had followed through with her suicidal ideation and jumped from the nearby cliff. Elaine had a history of psychiatric issues. She was hospitalised for the first time in 1992 at the age of 16. This would be a regular occurrence, with Elaine spending large periods of time as an inpatient at St Edmundsbury Psychiatric Hospital located in Lucan in West Dublin. During her time here, she became particularly close to her consultant psychiatrist, Professor Anthony Clare. Professor Clare diagnosed her with several conditions, including depression and borderline personality disorder. According to the Wikipedia entry for Elaine's death, she also had several other conditions, including dyslexia, diabetes and asthma. As a teenager, Elaine began to openly discuss her fascination with bondage, subservience and sadomasochism. This is a preoccupation that grew as Elaine reached adulthood. Elaine frequently engaged in self-harm and had ongoing suicidal ideations. This was made worse after the sudden death of her mother Eileen in 2002, and again with the death of her psychiatrist Professor Clare in 2007. 
That same year, Elaine had begun engaging in online fetish websites and connecting with like-minded individuals. On one such site, her username was Chained Brunette. On another, her profile name was HelpMeLearn36F. In 2007, she began speaking to a man with the username Architect72. He was a married man and she began a BDSM relationship with him that spanned several years. It appeared that this was an on-again, off-again relationship that was particularly intense in the first years after they met. While they had sexual contact and engaged in BDSM fetish practices, they would not have sexual intercourse for several years. During this time, Elaine spoke to eight men across various adult fetish websites and slept with two of the men. In 2008, her father Frank recalls a heated argument between the two about money. According to Frank, Elaine had poor money management skills. It was during this argument that she blurted out that she was in a relationship with a married professional, an architect from Fox Rock. At this point, there was a long pause, and Elaine disclosed to Frank that, quote, He ties me up and masturbates over me. We've never had sex, end quote. The conversation ended there and then, and it was never discussed by either of them again. In 2011, Elaine confided in her sister Anne Charles that she had lost her virginity to a man she had met through a dating website. She also told her that she had become pregnant through a one-night stand around the same time. Although it's unclear if the pregnancy was with the first man she met up with or someone else. She disclosed that she had miscarried early in the pregnancy. On the 10th of September 2013, three anglers fishing in Vartry Reservoir near Roundwood in County Wicklow saw a bag lying in the water. The anglers, William Fagan, his brother and a friend, were intrigued by the find and wanted to see what was inside the bag. The reservoir is usually quite deep, but a long, warm summer meant a shallow waterline of only 30 centimetres or 12 inches covered the reservoir. Inside the bag, they found some unusual items, including clothing, restraints, handcuffs and a ball gag. The trio stacked the items on a nearby wall and left. William Fagan was troubled by what they had found. He thought about it all night. The next day, he felt compelled to return to the reservoir. He retrieved the items and took them directly to Roundwood Garda Station. The officer in duty, Garda James O'Donoghue, agreed with William that there was indeed something unusual about the find. He didn't know if the items were related to a crime or not, but made the very fortunate decision to bag them as evidence anyway. Garda O'Donoghue was equally perplexed by the items he had been presented with. He travelled to Vartry Reservoir to further investigate. When he arrived, water levels had risen since the previous day. He couldn't get a clear view of what lay beneath the water. He decided to return another day. On the 16th of September, he returned to the site again. 
This time the sun was shining and water levels had again receded. He saw something metallic glistening in the sediment. He waded into the shallow water and retrieved the items one by one. He found a rusted knife, a leather mask, another set of handcuffs, an inhaler, a large ring, or possibly collar, human-sized, with a chain on it, and a set of keys. The keys had a supermarket loyalty card attached. This was traced to Elaine O'Hara, the woman who had, at this stage, been missing for almost 13 months. Later searches by the Garda Water Unit uncovered several more items. These included a rucksack, two Nokia mobile phones and the batteries to both phones. These had been removed and thrown away. A pair of eyeglasses were also recovered and the frame code and prescription were an exact match to the ones that Elaine O'Hara wore. This further bolstered the belief by authorities that they had found a dump site related to Elaine's disappearance. Separately, 30 kilometres away in Killakey, a scenic area in the foothills of the Dublin mountains, professional dog walker Magali Vergnet was about to make a gruesome discovery. Magali regularly walked several dogs as part of her business. Beginning in late August 2013, one of the dogs began to disappear into the woods and would triumphantly return with a bone in her mouth. Magali assumed it was an animal bone, likely from a deer carcass, which were common in the area. This same ritual was repeated on several walks, until eventually a substantial pile of bones was accumulating. Magali piled the bones together just off the main path. On the 13th of September, Magali became curious. She followed the dogs into the woods. There, she found scattered bones, including a protruding ribcage, alongside some human clothing. Magali contacted Frank Doyle, the owner of the land, and the two returned to confirm the discovery. They noted that a lot of the bones had been gnawed on by animals and noticed the unmistakable profile of a human jawbone jutting out of the forest floor. The group contacted authorities who set up a cordon and began a forensic investigation of the crime scene. Approximately 35% of the skeleton was missing. Despite this, police were able to confirm the identity of the remains through dental records. The body they had found was Elaine O'Hara, and this was now a homicide investigation. In the time since Elaine had disappeared, the bank had taken steps to repossess her apartment, since she had missed several payments and was now behind on her mortgage. In a stroke of luck for authorities, they had not yet proceeded with clearing the property or putting it on the market. In September 2013, Gardee searched Elaine's apartment, confiscating a laptop and mobile devices. On the laptop, authorities found that Elaine had backed up all of the text messages from her mobile phone. They were processed for forensic examination and analysis. Blood evidence and knife marks were found on Elaine's bedding. Several fetish and bondage items were also found during the search. Gardy analysed CCTV from the lobby in Elaine's apartment building and saw a man entering the building 
obscuring his face. The same man was also seen walking with Elaine on another occasion. Analysis of Elaine's phone and laptop revealed more than 2,600 text messages between Elaine and an unknown man. Forensic examination of the two mobile phones that Gardee retrieved from Vartry Reservoir each had a single phone number saved in them. One contact was saved as MSTR and the other as SLV, which authorities took to be shorthand for master and slave. This potentially gave an indication of the relationship between the previous owners of the devices. After comparing the data contained on the two mobile phones, along with the data collected from Elaine's electronic devices, Gardee became convinced that both devices had been used exclusively by Elaine O'Hara and her fetish partner. With Elaine taking on the submissive slave role and the unnamed man occupying the dominant master role. The data also suggested that whatever kind of relationship the two had, had spanned over the course of several years. This next part is very short but may be difficult. There were so many text messages between Elaine and the unnamed man. A huge amount of these were actually read out in the court case and were then published online and in various newspapers. They really are quite depraved and I'm not saying this because they're part of a BDSM lifestyle. I'm using the word depraved because these text messages go far beyond that. There's a violent bloodlust in them and the person sending them appeared to be escalating his behaviour. I'm going to keep some of the most violent texts to a minimum, but I just want to read you one or two just to get an idea of the direction that this relationship took. A text message to Elaine read, quote, My urge to rape, stab, kill is huge. You have to help me control or satisfy it, end quote. Another text read, quote, Promise I can kill you by stabbing, end quote. Forensic analysts further drilled down the data for any potentially identifying information that may have accidentally been shared between the two. They didn't have to look for too long. There were references to becoming a daddy again, to car repairs for a specific amount of money paid on a specific day, to sending a query to a tattoo parlour, and even to purchasing a bicycle. But none of these data points meant anything if they didn't have a person to match them to. Investigators found text messages that had been sent in May 2011. These messages referenced coming fifth in a model aircraft flying competition. When this lead was followed up, it was discovered that there was only one model aircraft competition that ran in Leinster in 2011. Authorities were easily able to obtain a list of the competition winners and soon identified the fifth-place winner as Dublin-based architect Graeme Dwyer. They now had a tangible suspect to investigate. Graeme Dwyer was born on the 13th of September 1972 in Bandon, Cork, to parents Sean and Susan. He was the second child of four with an older sister and two younger brothers. The family were solidly working class. In the early 90s, Dwyer moved from his native Cork to Dublin for university. He attended Dublin Institute of Technology, now Technological University Dublin, to study architecture. 
While attending a music festival in Tipperary in summer 1991, he met Donegal woman Emer O'Shea, and the two soon began dating. Emer later discovered she was pregnant and gave birth to a son, Senan, in October 1992. By 1996, the couple had separated, and while custody was shared, the co-parents had a strained relationship. The following year, in 1997, Dwyer began a relationship with fellow architecture student Gemma Healy, with whom he shared a birthday. While researching and writing this episode, one date keeps coming up again and again. Graeme Dwyer's birthday is the 13th of September. His wife Gemma's birthday is the same day. The 13th of September is also the day that Elaine's remains were recovered. It's probably nothing more than coincidence. But it just seems a little unusual that those dates seem to coincide. In July 2001, Dwyer secured a job with a prestigious architecture firm in Dublin city centre. He and Gemma married in 2002. By 2006, Dwyer was made a partner in his firm and was earning in excess of €140,000 per year. In 2007, the couple moved into the wealthy neighbourhood of Fox Rock in South County, Dublin. They would later welcome two young children into this home. Prior to this, they purchased a two-bedroom cottage in Rathmines, a sought-after area close to the city centre for €200,000. They spent €60,000 and several years renovating the property and sold it in 2007 for €590,000. Remember that this was at the height of the housing boom and the Celtic Tiger in Ireland. So unbelievable profits like this were possible. It seemed that their fortunes were on an upward trajectory. But we all know that life doesn't always work like that. Soon after their peak, cracks began to form in their charmed life. The 2008 housing crash and subsequent recession impacted the Dwyer family financially. Dwyer's wife lost her job as a project director at another architecture firm, and Dwyer's company were required to take several pay cuts over several years, resulting in a 50% drop in income for Dwyer. On top of this, the value of their home plummeted, and their debt skyrocketed. Despite having no criminal record, Graeme Dwyer's past gives us some clues that indicate that everything was not as it seemed. Colleagues and acquaintances described Dwyer as being quick to anger. They said he had an obsession with how others perceived him. His wife Gemma was originally from County Sligo and came from a well-to-do family of doctors and other respected professionals. It seems that while Dwyer had been elevated to middle-class status through his profession, job title and marriage, he struggled to overcome feelings of inadequacy from his working-class roots. There is evidence of the darker side of Dwyer's nature throughout the years, but usually in isolated instances with different people, so it wasn't easy for someone to connect the dots unless they were actively trying to. Ex-girlfriend and mother of his first child, Emer O'Shea, had ended their relationship. She would later say that she did this because she became concerned about his knife fetish. 
After dating for three years and sharing a child, Dwyer began to introduce his fetish to Emer. She was understandably uneasy about this revelation. He spoke about how he fantasized about stabbing a woman during sex and began to take a knife into the bedroom. On more than one occasion, he mimicked stabbing her with the knife during sex, but he never actually followed through with it. This, coupled with his bad temper, caused Emer to end the relationship. She moved their son away from Dwyer back to her native Donegal. Dwyer's petty and vindictive nature was also evidenced in his disagreements at work. He was obsessed with money, power and status, and in qualifying where he stood amongst the people around him. The source material is unclear on the specific year that this event happens, but we can assume it was earlier in his architecture career possibly in the late 90s or early 2000s. According to his employer, Dwyer found a way to hack into their internal computer system to find out how much everyone he worked for was earning. When he discovered that some staff members were being paid more than him, he became angry and disruptive at work. This was despite the fact that he had actually committed a crime and was not in fact the aggrieved party. One colleague recalls a disagreement that Dwyer later had while socialising with colleagues after work. They had gone to a pub and there had been a lengthy disagreement between Dwyer and another of his colleagues. The following Monday morning, when the office was opened, it was discovered that one employee's desk and work computer were damaged and in disarray. This had not been the case when the office was locked up on Friday evening. It wasn't lost on those who worked in the office that the desk belonged to the person Graham Dwyer had argued with. His employer became increasingly concerned about his erratic behaviour and began procedures to end his employment with them. Even after he had left the company, management were so worried about his potential behaviour that they had the locks changed on the building. Those who knew Dwyer said that while he was confident with women, particularly after he'd consumed alcohol, it was noted that he would approach women who may not be conventionally attractive. One person said that he would target, quote, easy prey, end quote. Which, according to the witness, often included overweight women or those who may have lower self-esteem. The Gardaí began a surveillance operation on Graeme Dwyer. They researched his background and tried to connect the phone data they had gathered with instance from his life. They were able to confirm the information they had garnered from phone data to events and dates that correlated with activities and events that had happened on the same dates in Dwyer's personal life. For example, Dwyer's wife Gemma had given birth to the couple's child on the same day that Elaine had sent a message congratulating him on becoming a father again. On the day that Elaine disappeared, Geolocation showed that Dwyer switched his work phone off close to his office at 5pm and switched it back on at 9pm, once he had returned home. The four hours between these times were unaccounted for. Forensic analysts use phone data to triangulate phone locations at key times, including times when Dwyer's work phone and master phone were in the same locations at the same time. Civilian crime and policing analyst Sarah Sked 
discovered that both mobile devices passed through the same cell towers at the same time on several dates in July 2012. Further to this, it was found that these cell towers were close to motorway toll booths. These dates also matched times and dates that Dwyer had travelled to and from Galway for a freelance architecture project. His licence plate was also recorded passing through the toll booth within minutes of the mobile phones pinging off the cell towers. With evidence lining up, the guardie prepared for a dawn raid of the Fox Rock home of the Dwyer family. They were then able to bring Dwyer in for questioning. This was five weeks after the recovery of Elaine's body. Dwyer denied all accusations and he also denied knowing Elaine O'Hara. He disputed that he owned any of the mobile phones that had been recovered. By the fourth interrogation interview, when presented with a text message to Elaine O'Hara sent from his work phone, he was no longer able to deny a real-world connection to Elaine. He was arrested and charged with Elaine's murder. Hard drives, laptops and other electronic devices were seized from the Dwyer home. On these, authorities found violent pornography featuring bondage and torture. Shockingly, several of the pornographic films were homemade. Comparing the media found in Dwyer's possession with that contained on Elaine's devices, Gardy found video recordings of Elaine bound and having knife wounds inflicted on her by Dwyer. Gemma Dwyer was horrified at the prospect of her husband's alleged crimes and fled the Fox Rock property soon after the raid. The house was vacant for many years, eventually being sold in summer 2020 at the height of the COVID pandemic. The defence and prosecution began preparing for a lengthy trial. The trial took place in courtroom 13 in the Central Criminal Court in Dublin. Prosecutor Sean Gearan SC tried the case, with Remy Farrell acting as defence counsel. Mobile phone data was central to the prosecution's case. Due to the length of time that Elaine's remains had been exposed to the elements, a definitive cause of death could not be established. Instead, the prosecution built a case based on Dwyer's own words that he had sent to Elaine and others. The defence argued that all of the evidence was circumstantial. It was the Gardies' belief that this crime was premeditated, that a huge amount of planning had gone into it, that Dwyer had intentionally planned to kill Elaine on that particular day and use her recent stint in a psychiatric hospital as a cover. He instructed her to park her car at the cemetery that her mother was buried in, where witnesses could have seen her, and arranged for her to walk down the steps by the cliffs to the sea. He hoped that he would get away with murder. Everyone who knew Elaine would just assume that she had given in to her suicidal ideation and had taken her own life. Often bodies that go into the fast-moving currents of the Irish Sea are never recovered. This is the story that Graeme Dwyer hoped everyone would believe. Elaine's youngest brother John testified that he had searched his sister's apartment after her disappearance and found a notebook containing a website address with FetLife in the title. 
When he searched for the website, he found that it was an adult fetish site. Worried and clutching at any potential lead, John set up a fake profile and began searching for traces of his sister on the website. Eventually, he came across a profile with the username Chained Brunette. It didn't have a profile picture, but he was certain that it was his sister. He passed the information onto the police. Sheila Hawkins, Frank O'Hara's partner, worked as a psychologist and she had known Elaine in a personal capacity for many years. In court, she confirmed that in her professional opinion, Elaine was a vulnerable adult. She said that she, quote, placed her emotional development around the age of 15, end quote. It emerged that Elaine had submitted to Dwyer's extreme sexual fantasies with promises of future commitment to their relationship. For example, text messages between the two showed that Dwyer told Elaine that he would give her a child if it helped him to find a victim. He referred to this arrangement in text as a life for a life. He kept pushing the boundaries of this request, telling Elaine that she would actively be involved in sourcing a woman for him to abuse and kill, and that she would hold the victim down while he raped and stabbed her to death. Elaine was vocal about not wishing to participate in this. Dwyer would not take no for an answer. He also attempted to coerce Elaine into taking her own life, but only if he could be involved in her death. The jury heard evidence that Graham Dwyer was a sexual sadist, who had become obsessed with blood and fantasies of stabbing women to death for his own sexual gratification. At one point, it emerged that Dwyer had selected a target in the form of estate agent Rowena Quinn. He hatched a plan that he shared with Elaine to lure Miss Quinn to a vacant house under the guise of viewing the property. He would then abduct, torture, rape and kill her. Thankfully, his plans in this situation were not followed through on. Miss Quinn never knew that she was in danger. If you've been listening to the podcast from the beginning of the season, you will know that this plan echoes Michael Sam's abduction for ransom of Stephanie Slater. If you haven't already listened to Stephanie's story, you can do so after this episode. Dwyer also began an online relationship in fetish chat rooms with American woman Darcy Day. He also extensively planned her death through stabbing. Darcy Day, an American woman living in Maine, testified that she had met Graham Dwyer through a fetish chat room. She admitted to having a troubled upbringing and of struggling with depression. Like Elaine, Darcy had struggled with self-harm and suicidal ideation since she was a young teenager. In her 20s, she began to explore BDSM. Later, she began to connect with people online with the alias Cassie. This is where she virtually met Graham Dwyer. As Cassie, Day described fantasies of dying, while Dwyer revealed fantasies of stabbing a woman to death during sex. Day testified that Dwyer had mentioned Elaine O'Hara to her and said that she allowed him to cut her in the stomach area. Darcy spoke of detailed death plans Dwyer had made to end her life. 
He shared that he had researched potential disposal sites for bodies in her home state of Maine. In his plan, he and Darcy would drive to a secluded area where he would restrain her, have sex with her, and either stab her or slit her throat. Darcy ended all contact with Dwyer and sought help. She said at trial that her life had drastically improved since the period she had been in contact with Dwyer. Authorities found a fictional story about Darcy Day with her name in the title on Dwyer's computer. In this story, Darcy Day travelled to Ireland and Dwyer took her to an isolated cabin and ultimately murdered her. Upon hearing this, many questioned whether there were aspects of this fictional story that mirrored what had happened to Elaine on that final day. During the trial, jurors were shown several extreme pornographic recordings that Dwyer had made, including several with Elaine. In these, he stabbed her while she was restrained. The prosecution told the jury that it was clear that Elaine was not enjoying the experience but that Dwyer was deriving sexual gratification from it. Sean Guerin, SC, for the prosecution, told the jury the following in his closing statement. Quote, Remarkably, when Graham Dwyer moved, these phones moved with him. Wherever he goes, the phones go. They are stuck to him like a shadow. End quote. He added that the text messages held up a mirror to Graham Dwyer's life and that it was simply impossible for it to have been anyone else. In March 2015, a jury of seven men and five women found Graham Dwyer guilty of the murder of Elaine O'Hara. On the 20th of April 2015, Graham Dwyer was sentenced to life imprisonment. He is serving his sentence at Midlands Prison alongside some of the most notorious prisoners in the country. Part of Dwyer's defence was that the reliance on mobile data to make the case against the defendant was invalid. This was due to legislation that was in place at the time. This was bolstered in 2021 by an advisor reviewing Dwyer's case for the Court of Justice of the European Union. This is also known as the CJEU. This advisor stated that mobile phone metadata was, quote, permitted only in the event of a threat to national security, end quote. This would mean that it could not legally be used during the investigation of other kinds of crimes. In April 2022, the CJEU ruled that the indiscriminate retention of mobile phone metadata was inconsistent with EU law but deferred to the Irish Court of Appeal to make a final decision related to this case. This ruling, if upheld, would have massive implications for criminal investigations going forward, not just in Ireland, but throughout the EU. Dwyer's case was dismissed by the Court of Appeal in March 2023. Irish legislators have recognised a potential gap in the law covering the use of mobile metadata in criminal investigations. At the time of this episode's release, are working on potential solutions for this. There is a great deal of planning and premeditation related to this crime. Elaine O'Hara was a gentle person with a kind heart. She was vulnerable to manipulation by those looking to abuse her. Whatever interest she may have had in the BDSM subculture, 
she was targeted, groomed and broken down by a level of sadism that is rare even in this scene. Elaine just wanted to be loved and find acceptance. While her relationship with Dwyer may have begun as a consensual one, it's clear from the documented messages logged as evidence that her boundaries had been ignored and eroded. She was afraid and had nowhere to escape to. He had a key to her apartment. He was forcing her into practices that she was not a willing participant in, particularly in the final year of their relationship. Her fragile mental state and suicidal ideation were used as fodder to fuel Dwyer's depraved sexual fantasies. His looming shadow was always there, always watching, always controlling, always willing her to ignore the instinct to preserve her own life so that she could fulfill her abusive partner's predilection for blood and violence. If it would not be her blood that was spilled, then he would coerce her into luring another woman into his trap. He had it all planned out. Elaine O'Hara deserved better. She just wanted to be happy. She may not have had peace when she was alive, but in death, she finally has justice. This podcast was written, researched, produced and narrated by me, Rory Jane McCormick. All episode sources can be found on the episode page on propensitypod.com. You can also follow the podcast on social media. I'm working on some bonus content that I plan to release in the coming months. The only way for you to know about this is if you are following the podcast. Hit subscribe now so you never miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, consider also giving a five-star review. Reviews are free. They cost nothing but your time and they really help to grow the podcast. Until next time.